We are uh, finishing chapter 2. We are at verse 18, which reads in the New American Standard Version, Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, let your eyes have no rest. The Hebrew text of verse 18 and verse 19 is complex and admittedly very difficult. Now, the liberal critical scholars have a solution to any difficulty that they can't solve. Many times they'll simply rewrite the Hebrew. It's called emendation. They'll emend the text to make it read something easier or something more acceptable to their own theological presuppositions. I do not believe it is necessary to amend or rewrite the original. I believe that the solution to the difficulty of the Hebrew here is to accept what the author wrote and what has come down to us in the Masoretic text and to notice that there is a parallel or symmetrical complement. In fact, several of them in these two verses, but the one I point out obviously is the complement of symmetrical direct discourse. Now, you will see that if your version has quotation marks around verses 18 and 19. There is symmetrical or parallel direct speech. Well, who is speaking? I ponder that for a moment. I will return to that question. But in addition to the complementary imagery by direct discourse, which binds verse 18 and 19, the direct speech binding them, notice the sequence of seven. Now, there's a special Hebrew number, isn't it? The number seven. Notice the sequence of seven verbs which connect these two verses. Now, I am persuaded that all seven verbs are imperatives or have the force of imperatives. That is, they all have the force of a command or a justive exhortation, which amounts to a mandate. Whatever the precise grammatical case, and the grammar in some of these verbs is debated, whatever that may be, we still have two verses bound tightly together by a sequence of emphatic verbs. Now the speaker. Would you like to risk your reputation on suggestion who, suggesting who is speaking here in verses 18 and 19? We might start with asking who has been speaking since verse 11. It must be Jeremiah. Do you remember? Yes, it is Jeremiah. <laughs> Interrupted by the voice of infant children in verse 12 and the enemy adversaries who voice their opposition in verse 15 and verse 16. 
But the dominant voice to this point from verse 11 up to verse 18, dominant voice has been the I, my personal voice of the prophet poet. So is his voice continuing in verse 18? Or is there another possibility? Is there another possibility of a different voice? If so, what would you suggest? Mm, close, but no cigar. Lady Jerusalem, yes. <clears throat> so, that is another possibility, the personified voice of the city. The city exhorting personally. And so, the hortatory verbs or mandatory verbs. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to suggest that there's an intentional ambiguity in verses 18 and 19. The voices are so close together, expressing the same appeal, that they are blended into one. Two voices as one, or very nearly as one. And those two voices would be the voice of Jeremiah and the voice of Lady Jerusalem, which we have identified as the dominant dual voices of this entire poem to date. The voice then of the personified city and the voice of the prophetic person united, identical, joined in supplication as one together. Thus, we could say Jeremiah pleads as the city herself pleads and Lady Jerusalem appeals as the prophet himself appeals. A plaintive, supplicatory unity of voice so close together that it's almost impossible to separate them. The cri de cour. Cri de cour, cry of the heart. Is it both the cry of the prophet's heart and the cry from the heart of the prophet's city? Is the torrential river of tears, which belongs to the daughter of Zion in chapter 1, verse 16? Notice that. The city in 1.16 says, My eyes run down with water, for these things I weep. The torrential river of tears, which belongs to the daughter of Zion, do they also belong to the weeping prophet? Indeed they do. Chapter 2, verse 11. My eyes fail because of tears. My heart is poured out. Mirror imaging. The tears that run down like a river day and night in verse 18 are a mirror image, indeed a mimetic mirror image of the tears which have flowed from Lady Jerusalem's eyes and from the eyes of the prophetic poet Jeremiah himself. So close together, you see, that they are almost identical. Well, verse 19 
is a four-line verse in the Hebrew text. Now, we've observed before that there are other verses in chapter 2 which are three lines in the Hebrew text. We looked at that briefly uh, several weeks ago. The four-line verse is an exception. It's an exception here in verse 19 of chapter 2 as it was in verse 7 of chapter 1. That was a four-line verse as well. So that chapter 1 and chapter 2 have, as a rule, three line, uh, three lines of Hebrew per, per verse, except in verse 7 of chapter 1, which is a four-line of Hebrew verse, and verse 19 of chapter 2, which is also a four-line of Hebrew verse as well. Why? Why an exception to the rule? Twenty-one other verses in both chapters which have the three-line perverse rule. One verse in each chapter with a four-line perverse, breaking the rule, breaking the pattern, breaking the apparent sequence and similarity of repetition. Why? Well, this, yes, Randy? Sure, go ahead. He's calling for action. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I'll give you a B plus for the stab in the dark. I'll take it. Yes. <laughs> Most students would. <laughs> now, this this is a verse. This is a verse of intense entreaty. This verse has four of the seven imploring verbs that we have in verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 has three. Verse 19 has four. Those verbs are verbs of urgency. Arise. Cry aloud. Pour out. Lift up. Yes, it is in a way a cry for action but it is a poignantly urgent appeal. And the expanded lines, the expanded intensity, amplify and augment the pleas to the Lord. Notice before the presence of Adonai. In other words, this expanded four-line verse is a verse which expands the horizon to the very presence of the Lord. This verse expands the vector to the face-to-face pane Adonai. In Hebrew, face of God, presence of the Lord, pane Adonai, which is the language of the Hebrew text in the verse. You see the poignancy here. Pour out your heart right in front of the face of the Lord Adonai. Arise, draw near, lift up your hands and your heart to the face, to face Shekinah glory presence of the Lord God. He invites you. 
He invites you into his presence chamber. He invites you into his face-to-face presence chamber. See the intensity here. The intensity, poignancy, and sweetness of this urgency. He opens his face-to-face beatitude to your heart. He urges you to come. He urges you to come pleading, come confessing, come crying aloud for the blessedness of his face-to-face presence. Has the Lord Adonai not promised you you shall see him face to face? Has he not so promised? You shall see his blessed, all-glorious, all-gracious, all-loving face. You shall look upon him who is the very image and nature of Lord Adonai. You shall look upon him with his thorn-pierced brow, his nail-pierced hands, his spear-gashed side. You shall see him face to face in his glory presence as your heart is poured out like water before him, as your hands are lifted up to him in love and thanksgiving, as your life is hidden with him, hidden before his face with him in his everlasting dwelling place. An amplified four-line verse for an amplified invitation and exhortation for all, all the sorrowing and suffering people of God, all the sorrowing and suffering people of God, all The Israel of God of every age, the Israel of God of every age, arise, cry aloud, come into the face-to-face presence of your Lord Adonai through his precious Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. A small note about verse 19 before we go on, actually about both 18 and 19. We pointed out that these two verses are tightly bound together. In further support, note the duplicate word heart, which occurs in verse 18 and again in verse 19. There is a twice-over simile, like occurs twice in these two verses, both exceedingly prominent in the Hebrew. The like pattern jumps out at you from the text of the Hebrew page. Very tightly woven together, these two verses, 18 and 19. Now to verse 20. See, O Lord, and look, with whom hast thou dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring, the little ones who were born healthy? 
Should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Now notice that first line. See, O Lord, and look. Does it remind you of anything? Let's turn back to verse 11 of chapter 1. You see an exact repeat of what we find in 2.20 in 1.11. Notice verse 12 of chapter 1. See, O look in verse 11, verse 12. Look and see, the little reverse chiasm that's the key to the crisscross in that whole first chapter. And then up in verse 9. See, O Lord. All right, so the vocabulary that we have here in verse 20 of chapter 2 is vocabulary which has been used before in chapter 1. Here, in 2.20, it suggests a shift in voice, a change in voice. What pronouns do you observe here? in verses 21 and 22. If you scan 21 and 22 of chapter 2, what pronouns jump out at you? Anyone? My and you. My and you. Particularly my, which occurs in both 21 and 22. Well, who is speaking? Who's saying my? Is it the same my that we had in verse 11? That my was Jeremiah. Is this my Jeremiah? My virgins, verse 21. My young men. My terrors on every side. Jerusalem. This is Lady Jerusalem speaking at the end of chapter 2. Even as Lady Jerusalem spoke at the end of chapter 1. Notice verse 20 of chapter 1. See, O Lord. There's that see, Lord, again. See, O Lord, for I am in distress. Lady Jerusalem speaking in a personified manner. All right. There are two horrors here in verse 20 which Lady Jerusalem implores God to behold. See, O Lord, and look. See, O Lord, and look at what? The desperation of starvation, in fact cannibalism, and the desecration of the inner sanctum, in fact murder in the temple. The one is unnatural. Those who had been the source of food for their infant offspring now consume those infants for their own food. Mothers devour the fruit of their own bodies. Unnatural. 
The other horror is profane. Those who had killed sacrificial beasts in the holy temple precincts are killed like beasts before the altar of sacrifice. And the prophets who had profaned the word of God are slain by the profane hands of those whom the word of God prophesied would destroy them. Yes, there is irony here, bitter irony, in fact, tragic and pathetic irony, but that irony is emphatic in the cry of Lady Jerusalem. Jeremiah, in verse 9, had, verse 19, I'm sorry, had urged Jerusalem to cry aloud with imperative force. Jerusalem, in verse 20, answers the poet prophet's command as she cries out aloud, see and look with imperative force. Is the city answering the poet's creed occur, the cry from the heart? Is the city expressing heartfelt godly sorrow? Or is she merely displaying the misery and horror around her? Is there any contrition in the voice of the personified city at the end of chapter 2? Or do we find once more a record of the facts, an analytical record of the facts, and that is all purely horizontal? Where we found intimations and actual expressions of confession of sin in the voice of Lady Jerusalem at the end of chapter 1, here at the end of chapter 2, that language of the soul seems absent. No creed cure. The soul has been numbed. The soul of Lady Jerusalem has been stunned. The soul of Lady Jerusalem has been stupefied by dead infants, dead priests, dead prophets, dead virgins, dead young men. So much death that all Lady Jerusalem can see and look upon is the all-encompassing death, death, and more death. It is numbing. It is stunning. It is horrifying and stupefying. As if the prophet poet, after the fulfillment of his prophecies, still pleads with Lady Jerusalem to turn her heart to the Lord in penitent sorrow, but the lady is obsessed. She is obsessed with death. She is benumbed by death. She can look and see only death. Is it a post-traumatic syndrome pattern which locks the consciousness into horror and holds it fast in its imprisonment? Is it the horror of brutal war, genocidal decimation, cultural annihilation which fixates the mind? fixates the mind, heart, and soul in an endless circle of horror, suffering, so fixated that it cannot even be discussed. 
They cannot even talk about what they've seen on the battlefield. So tyrannical is the hold of the horror on the psyche that they cannot entertain it. Is this what holds Lady Jerusalem in its grasp here? Interesting questions to ponder and to pose. The text and the chapter does not answer them. They must be answered. At least if we are raising proper implications, they must be answered. And chapter 3 and chapter 5 will supply the answer. So we wait for the poetic narrative drama to unfold the answer. We wait for chapter 3 and for the final or eschatological chapter, chapter 5. But in between, we would see and look upon Jesus. Jesus who is life and not death. Jesus who is the resurrection and the life, not the inhumation and the death. We would see and look upon Jesus in life, eschatological life, because he has seen and looked upon us in our death and graciously united us with his life, his eschatological life. We would see and look upon life eternal, full in the face of the Son of God, who has pledged to all who believe on him, all who trust him alone for their redemption, he is pledged that they shall see him as he is in the dwelling place where he dwells, world without end. Surely you wish to see and look upon that everlasting face. Verse 21 On the ground, in the streets, lie young and old. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. Thou hast slain them in the day of thine anger. Thou hast slaughtered, not sparing. The voice of Lady Jerusalem echoes the voice of the poet, prophet, Jeremiah. As you can see, from your concatenated chiastic outline of chapter 2, B and B prime on your sheet. The downward spiral or downward vector of the drama of Jerusalem's destruction is mirrored. It is mirrored in recursive language, that is, language which occurs in both places. B and B prime. Verse 2 and verse 21. Not sparing the inhabitants, God brings them down to the ground through the swords of the Babylonian troops. 
what Jeremiah describes in verse 2, daughter Zion confirms reciprocally in verse 21. What daughter Zion confirms, Jeremiah describes, and vice versa. As one commentator has noted, every word except two in this verse has already been used in the book of Lamentations. Every word except the word for lie and slaughtered has been used before in the book of Lamentations. The pathos is intensified by the poetic replication. This reuse of words, this reimaging of the paradigm is to emphasize the pathos and the sorrow which has been poured out upon both voices, prophet and city. But then there are many commentators who go on to assert that the poet author of these words makes God the author of this evil. Notice the line, Thou hast slaughtered. Their case at face value, literally speaking, appears insurmountable. The literal reading of the text appears to support their charge of a bloodthirsty deity, a deity like the pagan gods of the ancient world, those pagan gods of the ancient world who murdered and maimed one another as well as murdered human creatures. These liberal commentators who literally read the text are pagans at heart themselves. But God is not the author of evil. He is the permitter of evil, but not the agent who performs the evil in question. The God of the Old Testament and New Testament is good. He is perfectly good. There is no evil in him. It is not in his nature. There is not a wisp of iniquity or wicked, murderous slaughter within his perfect, holy, righteous, moral being. None. He cannot act contrary to his nature but he can permit acts contrary to his nature. And he permits the Babylonians to slaughter the Judeans, as indeed they did, with his permission, in fact, with his permission of divine judgment. But it is blasphemy to suggest that he is the active authorial agent in the debacle. To allow evil for purposes of his own sovereignty is one thing. That does not make him the authorial agent of the evil in question. That evil arises from sinful hearts. And there is no sin in the heart or the nature or the being or the essence or the substance of the triune God. Verse 22. Thou didst call as in the day of an appointed feast. 
my terrors on every side. And there was no one who escaped or survived in the day of the Lord's anger, those whom I bore and reared, my enemy annihilated them. Andy? The, back in Joshua's time, when when they destroyed all their enemies around, wasn't wasn't it God that did a lot of the destroying? It wasn't the Jewish people that? So I mean, I'm I'm just wondering. Not that it's I disagree with your statement. I just wonder how you was it, it was it evil for the Canaanites to be destroyed? No, no, no it was wouldn't necessarily be evil for these people to be destroyed either in this case. So in, I don't know in, what's the difference between Yeah, in the narrow sense of uh, the fact that they're sinners, that is true. With the Canaanite destruction, of course, they were devoted to destruction because they were so pernicious and evil in God's sight, even as the world in Noah's day was devoted to destruction under his judgment. It is simply a coming near that, or a more proximate uh, aspect of the eschatological judgment of eternal destruction. In other words, the Canaanites receive eternal destruction before the final day of eternal destruction. So, so if, God, if, God, if God is faulted for that, then he is faulted for eternal judgment as well, which of course is what most liberals will say. They don't believe in hell either. So what distinguishes this from the now, in the narrow sense, there is no distinction. I don't, I don't mean to suggest that. But because we're dealing with it here, and because so many commentators on this verse recoil in horror from this language and from this view of the Old Testament God who seems like a pagan slaughterer, and they actually talk that way in their commentaries, all in the interest of placing the New Testament God over against this, or the God of their own imagination over against this, without wrestling with the difference between God's decretive and permissive will. God, God doesn't have to no, that is true. But I am addressing an issue which comes out of the discussion of the text, and also an issue which all Christians need to grapple with. If there is evil in the world, whence evil? Augustine, the most profound uh, grappler of that in the ancient church. Jonathan Edwards, probably the most profound grappler with that question in the modern church. But it is a question which all of us have grappled with, or at least we should ponder. If there is evil and God is not the author of it, as the scriptures say, then where did it come from? It came from Satan, ultimately. Then it came from sinful man approximately. But how does it exist in a universe in which God himself has none of it in himself? Doesn't Augustine say evil has no existence? <laughs> you, you, you define it out of existence negatively, right? Now that was easy. Yeah, no. for him, that's what I'm saying. No, no, no. I don't no, agree no. with his definition. No, 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 no. The, pri the, primitive, the primitive argument for the origin of evil doesn't say anything about its positive and, 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 uh, and, and cancerous, infectious depravity. It's almost like you've uh, emasculated it nicely. 
for the sake of your theological system. Augustine. Augustine's answer isn't satisfactory. I don't. I don't think anybody thinks it's satisfactory. Yeah. Okay. We're on the same page, and that's all I was trying to get at. Here. Thank you. I, I, I was delighted to be on the brink of a break on the same page with Randy. <laughs> Edwards does a lot better. I agree with you. Yes. We're on the same page on that. Thank you. All right. Sort of amazing, verse, verse 22. We have come full circle, chiastically speaking, with this phrase in this verse, the day of God's anger. And you can see it in the A, A prime of your outline concatenated macrochiastic sheet. Verse 1 and verse 22 contain reciprocal or exact language. Now that makes this chapter begin and end in an inclusio. It binds the chapter together as a poetic narrative unit. But there is also mirror symmetry in one other expression in chapter 1, in verse 1 and verse 22, and that is Yahweh Adonai, the Lord God. So my point here is to observe that the form of the duplication in A and A prime, and in fact there are two Patterns of duplication in A and A prime here is an inclusio delimiter. It sets the limits of the second chapter and ties it together in terms of beginning and end. How it begins is the way it ends. How it ends is the way it begins. So that enfolded between is this unfolding. Sorry for the duplication there. Well, maybe I'm not. <clears throat> Uh, the unfolding pattern of mirror symmetry all the way down from verse 2 to verse 21 and verse 3 to verse 20, etc., all the way down through the poem. All right, once again, the masterpiece of the poetic construction. But back to Yahweh Adonai here. He begins and ends this chapter. He begins and ends this particular poem of the book. That's the covenant name for God, Yahweh. The covenant God of Judah is at work here bringing near what? The Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord. A now demonstration to Judah and Jerusalem in 586 B.C. of the not yet Yom Yahweh. The day of the Lord which is yet to come. When the Son of God will appear in the heavens, at his parousia, at his coming again in glory. And that covenant God is at once the sovereign Lord. He is the one who foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. 586 B.C. And that future day known only to himself when his just anger will devour the entire universe in a fervent heat. So Second Peter 3.10. We have here, in this final verse of the second chapter, another indication of the pen print of the prophet Jeremiah, a phrase which is common to his undisputed prophetic work, also occurs here in this disputed work. 
the phrase terrors or terror on every side. That phrase is common to the book of Jeremiah and it is common to the book of Lamentations. Is it not obvious that the same authorial hand is responsible for penning the phrase in both places? It seems obvious to me. If the phrase appears in both books, same person is the author of both books. And as an example, it occurs in Jeremiah 6, verse 25, Jeremiah 20, verses 3 and 10, Jeremiah 46, verse 5, Jeremiah 49, verse 29, and Jeremiah's Lamentations, chapter 2, verse 22, etc. If I'm preaching to the choir, since you've all been persuaded that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, either because you believed it before you came to sit in on this study, or because you've been persuaded by my serum logic as a result of this study, Either way, the imprint is there. Why then do we have conservative, even reformed Bible scholars and Old Testament prophets who refuse that identification, reject it? Why? Because of the pressure of the liberal critical establishment in Old Testament studies which says, Das ist not scientific. I quote my own German Old Testament professor who was a high-card, card-carrying liberal. I don't know what else you do with these telltale marks. You know that you can tell a Beethoven symphony just by listening to it. His thumbprints all over it. You can tell a Mozart overture just by listening to it. His thumbprints all over it. You can tell those things that just hits your ear. Well, here we got pen prints all over. Repeated phrases and words. Doesn't that tell you same author as it tells you same composer? Duh. Not if you have a PhD in Old Testament studies. Duh. Okay. At the end of this second chapter, this second chapter of laments, we find the two voices in our poetic narrative drama drawing closer. I suggested it was almost impossible to separate them in verses 18 and 19. They're blending descriptively and subjectively, merging imperceptibly. Two voices at the end of chapter 2, leaving us on the brink, at the portal, leaving us poised to enter into the largest chapter, the keystone chapter, the central chapter of the book of Lamentations. Whose voice will we hear in chapter 3? Will we leave behind the sorrowful voice of the personified city? Or will the dolorous voice of the poet-prophet echo forth no more. Are we at a transition point in our poetic drama, a shift in characterization as stunning and dramatic as the magnificent acrostic in front of us? Come, 
see and look. Come back. Look and see. Take your break. I want to begin with an overview of this third chapter by way of introducing the entire 66 verses. To this point in our study, we have followed the dual narrative voices of our poetic drama since we first met them in chapter one. Two voices. One, that of the personified city, Jerusalem lamenting her destruction. The other voice, that of the person of the poet, the person of the prophet, Jeremiah. He too lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. Chapter 3 presents one voice, and only one voice throughout. As you scan this largest of the five chapters of Lamentations, you will observe the first person pronouns ubiquitously sprinkled across the 66 verses. Verse 1 of chapter 3 identifies the voice of the speaker in this third keystone and most poignant of chapters. His is the male voice of one who has suffered. I am the man who has seen affliction. His is the voice, the male voice of one who has felt the sting of God's wrath. One who has been driven into deep darkness. One who has cried out to the Lord but has not been answered. One who folds into his own voice the narrative story of the two voices of chapters 1 and 2. His own voice mirroring in symmetrical fashion their voices. His own voice taking the place of their voices. His own voice vicariously speaking for their voices. His own suffering voice substituting for them. He himself bearing the reproach of the city. He himself bearing the reproach of the nation. He himself bearing the reproach of the prophet. This voice of the suffering man. This voice of the suffering spokesman. This voice of the suffering servant of the Lord. Here, the voice of the poet prophet becomes the voice of the vicarious, the substitutionary, the in our place suffering servant of the Lord. He embodies the narrative of that suffering servant. He incarnates in his own story the story 
of that suffering servant. He displays in his own agonizing suffering the piercing, wounding, crushing agony of the suffering servant of God. In chapter 3, the voice we hear is the voice of the suffering substitute for the city of God, for the Israel of God, for the servants of God. This voice bears their affliction. The dynamic and symmetrical relationship between the voice of this suffering man in Lamentations 3 and the figure of the suffering servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 has led some scholars, especially in Jewish circles, has led some scholars to argue that Jeremiah is the fulfillment of that Isaiah 53 vicarious figure. But the New Testament, especially Acts chapter 8, tells us the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is our Lord Jesus Christ, the ontological Son of God. Jeremiah may anticipate the suffering servant of the Lord. He may mirror the suffering servant of the Lord, as Lamentations 3 will demonstrate in my showing. But he is not the ontological suffering servant of the Lord. As a creature, he can only prefigure that ontological and eschatological servant of God. He cannot be that servant because he is not God, God the Son incarnating perfectly and completely as the God-man incarnating once and for all suffering servant of the Lord. Jeremiah could not be that Ebed Yahweh of Isaiah 53, but Jesus could be that Ebed Yahweh of Isaiah 53. Throughout this chapter, Lamentations 3, we would see Jesus prefigured and anticipated in the life of Jeremiah. But in coming to Jesus, beyond and greater than Jeremiah, we come to the one who alone is able to perfectly and completely bear our sorrows and carry our agonizing suffering. A greater than Jeremiah is here. A greater sufferer than Jeremiah is here. We meet him in these pages of Old Testament poetic narrative prophecy. We meet him prefigured and anticipated, even embodied in these pages but we meet him supremely and finally in the pages of the scriptures which fulfill these anticipations. We meet him in a manger. We meet him at a cross. We meet him at an empty tomb. We meet him glorified at the right hand 
of the majesty on high. Now, if you have the outline in front of you, you will notice that chapter 3, as chapter 1 and 2, has the form of an acrostic. And you can see the Hebrew alphabet on the left-hand side of the outline, even as you have seen the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet matching the 22 verses of chapters 1 and chapter 2. But here you will notice the difference that we have alluded to before. There are three verses in each stanza, each line or each verse of which begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, the second page in your handout shows you part of that in chapter 3. You can see that as you read the Hebrew from right to left, verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3 all have the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet beginning the word that begins the verse, the Aleph. In verses 4, 5, and 6, once again, you see every word in those lines beginning with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the base. Verses 7, 8, and 9, the Gimel, and so on with Dallas and 10, 11, and 12. The pattern is exactly alike as you look at the initial letter in each verse. It follows the threefold pattern of 66 verses divided by three, or 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. I did not give you the whole chapter in Hebrew. I only gave you that portion of it so that you could see the pattern with your eyes. But you will note that from your uh, mirror symmetrical outline, the the pattern uh, consistently works its way through the 66 verses. Now, you'll notice that I have not labeled this a chiasm, even though it looks as if I've outlined it in chiastic style. It's not technically a chiasm, but it is a mirror symmetry. You will notice in verses 1 to 3 that the hand of God's wrath upon the suffering man is mirrored symmetrically in God's hand of anger upon the enemies of the suffering man in verses 64 to 66. So you have that mirror reciprocity or mirror symmetry, though it's not strictly chiastic. Another illustration in verses 10 to 12, especially verse 11. God has turned aside from the suffering man, turned aside from his pleas, his cries, his prayers, leaving him desolate. Verses 55 to 57 mirror the symmetry of verses 10 to 12. They show God's attentive uh, cry, to, uh, attention to the sufferer's cry, his pleas, his prayers, drawing near to him when he calls. The mirror symmetry there is a reverse reciprocity. <clears throat> He does not hear in 10 to 12. He does hear in 55 to 57. In other words, it may be that this mirror paradigm or mirror symmetry in chapter 3 is in fact a reverse mirror. 
a pattern of <clears throat> looking at things one way in A through K and looking at them in the exact opposite or reverse way in K prime through A prime. Whether that is true or not remains to be seen, and we'll have to determine that as we move through the individual sections or individual verses of the chapter. <clears throat> what is being unfolded here is a narrative of the suffering of that suffering man who identifies himself in verse 1. The suffering of the servant man of the Lord is disclosed. It is reciprocal. It is symmetrical as the units of the acrostic point out. Each unit part, the dramatic narrative voice, is a player in the story. Here that player is the man of sorrows who suffers in the place of the city and the poet. The theology of suffering, which we have been exploring throughout this, uh, these studies, the theology of suffering unfolds here in chapter 3 in an individual, in one man's voice, in one man's voice drawing into itself the dual voices of the poetic narrative drama of the characters in chapters 1 and 2. The many in the one, the one in the many. Structure mirrors theology, Theology recapitulated in structure. This structure is making a theological point. Will the structure of the narrative life of our Lord Jesus Christ do any less? Surely, surely it will do exceedingly far and above what we could ask or think. The structure of the narrative life of our Lord Jesus Christ will incarnate theology in history. His story, Jeremiah's story, Jerusalem's story, our story. It is here. It is here by way of anticipation and projection. It is here in the story of this suffering man in Lamentations 3. You would see Jesus. You will see him in this third chapter through the life of Jeremiah. Verses 1 to 3. We will now take verses 3 at a clip or sections 3 at a clip. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. Now, many commentators spend much ink detailing how the I, author of chapter 3, cannot be the proet. Prophet, prophet, poet, Jeremiah. We will once again provide some of the evidence to the contrary, though we could do this for all 66 verses of Lamentations 3, a process which would take us off our track. 
we will do it for verses 1 to 3 to illustrate the point. The point that this imagery and vocabulary echoes the imagery and vocabulary of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. His thumbprint is all over this chapter. The wrath of God, which the suffering man endures here in verse 1, is the wrath of God with which he afflicts the generation of Jeremiah's time. Jeremiah 7, verse 29, precisely the same words and vocabulary. The darkness which enfolds the suffering man here in verse 2 is the darkness which God will bring on the nation of Judah in Jeremiah 13, 16. Darkness, not light there, as well as darkness, not light here. And the hand of God. The hand of God which has been turned against the suffering man in verse 3 is the hand which rests upon Jeremiah in his solitary loneliness, Jeremiah 15:17, and that loneliness all day long, as here in Lamentations 3:3. 3, 3. The vocabulary of Lamentations 3, therefore, is reflected, mirrored, echoed in the vocabulary of the book of Jeremiah. Fifty-one of these 66 verses, 51 of the 66 verses of the chapter before us contain language found in one or more of the 52 chapters of Jeremiah. The exact same vocabulary. Fifty-one out of 66 verses. The exact same vocabulary. The man of verse 1 suffers. He suffers affliction, mirroring the self-affirming affliction of the personified city. That word for affliction appears in chapter 1 of Lamentations, verse 3, verse 7, and verse 9. The suffering man of verse 1 is smitten. He is smitten with the rod of God's wrath as the personified city and people of Judah are smitten with the rod of God's wrath. He is driven into darkness, the no-light darkness of the shadow of smoke and gloom which consumes the city, the nation, and the people. Day after day, He feels the backside of the hand of God as all Jerusalem and Judea have felt the backside of that hand. All that has fallen upon a nation, all that has fallen upon a city, all that has fallen upon a people now in chapter 3 falls upon one man, one person enclosed, enveloped, sandwiched reciprocally in the suffering of that people the suffering of that city, the suffering of that nation. One suffering man in their place. I trust you grasp the profound significance of that image and the profound theological meaning that that image image communicates 
even to you 2,600 years after the book was written. Verses 4 to 6. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. The sufferer now enlarges upon his identification with, his participation in, his union with the lamentable agony of Jerusalem and Judah's fate. The wasting away, verse 4, the wasting away of his flesh and skin is his sharing in the famine which struck the nation under siege, chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and 19. The breaking of his bones, images the fractured and broken bodies, crumpled, hobbled in the streets, flesh and bones, the whole person, the whole flesh and bone person, Suffering, and with that suffering, this man identifies. He even identifies with the siege imagery of the fall of Jerusalem in verse 5. Literally, the Hebrew text reads here, He set a siege against me, or he built a siege against me. In other words, what Babylon did to Zion God has done to this suffering man. He has surrounded him with bitterness. The same word which appears in verse 19 of this chapter, where the King James will translate it, gall, the wormwood and the gall. The cup of God's wrath, gall, bitter like gall. It is hard. Hard like the oppression of Egyptian bondage. This suffering man is drawing into himself the bitterness, the hardship, the bondage of the people of God from 586 B.C. back to 1447 B.C. As if he is bearing in himself the suffering of the people of God from Egypt to Babylon, from Egypt to Babylon and beyond. And beyond, verse 6, beyond to dark places. Beyond to dark places like the places of the dead. Tombs of the dead. Dark, lifeless, long dead. The Hebrew word olam meaning forever here. Long dead. Dark places like those forever dead. Eternally dead. This suffering man taking on himself the darkness of eternal death. He, participating in that forever aspect of death with its interminable darkness. He, swallowed up in darkness, even darkness which can be felt. He, shut up in darkness, the darkness of the tomb of the dead. He uniting his story to the story of death and darkness and the tomb and the olam aspect of the darkness of death. Surely, surely the Lord Jesus Christ did this, did all of this, did all of this and 
beyond. Randy? You're reading from the New American Standard. I am reading from the New American Standard, yes. Verses 7 to 9. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. These verses echo the confinement which accompanied the siege of Jerusalem. The city of citizens of Zion were walled in. All their exit roads blocked up. Their chains of bondage and exile heavy, heavy upon their limbs. They are hemmed in. Their freedom and liberty of movement blockaded. Their independence and voluntary rights cut off. The Babylonians have shut them in. The Babylonians have shut them in as God has shut them out. Shut out their prayers. Shut out their cries for help. Not even the Egyptians, erstwhile allies, dare lock swords with Nebuchadnezzar's troops, Jeremiah 37, 7. They turn tail and run, leaving Jerusalem still blockaded, besieged, surrounded. The in-out antithesis folds into its interface, nation, city, and poet prophet. And the suffering man, the suffering man participates in, identifies with, is united to the confinement of the city. He too is besieged with them. He too is walled in with them. He too is bound in chains as many of them will be. Jeremiah 40 verse 1, take the chains off of Jeremiah said Nebuchadnezzar. Even his prayerful cries are shut out. Though his life is redeemed as the reciprocal or mirror section of our symmetrical pattern indicates, verse 58, see prime on your outline, that deliverance takes place on the other side of death and destruction. The suffering man goes to the experience of bondage and death prior to experiencing the vindicating salvation of the Lord. The protological suffering man, Lamentations 3, anticipates the eschatological suffering God-man, New Testament story of Jesus of Nazareth. You see the language here of this suffering man projecting the language of the agony of the Son of Man, the Son of God, who is our Savior Jesus Christ. If you do not see it, you are not reading the text aright. You are not understanding the revelation of the book. You are not understanding the prophetic as well as the poetic majesty and depth of the treasure that is before you. This language of this suffering man is the language of the suffering man of Isaiah 53 
who is the suffering Son of Man, our Savior. It is the imagery projected in advance. It is the poetic drama lived out in advance. With one exception, the living out here cannot match the living out there. The living out here in 586 cannot match the living there in 33 A.D. or 30 A.D. plus or minus. It cannot match it because though this suffering man is the prophet servant of God, he is not the ontological son of God. That is the essential difference. If Jesus of Nazareth be not that ontological son of God incarnate, then Lamentations 3 is mere pathetic poetry. That's all it is. It is nothing more than Jewish pathetic poetry. Would you have mere Jewish pathetic poetry? Or would you have the life of Christ, Son of God, revealed to you through the book of Lamentations? As for me and my house, we would see Jesus. We would see Jesus here. For that is what the revelation communicates. More richly, more dramatically, more poignantly than we could even imagine, Jeremiah's life, a virtual mirror reciprocal of the life of Christ in so many ways. Again, I repeat what they, re- what they said about Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18, that he was Jeremiah come back from the dead. Even they recognized it. Would to God they would have fallen at his feet and loved and worshipped and believed on him. We'll stop there this evening and resume at verses 10 to 12 next time as we work our way through this third chapter. Bring your outline back. You don't need to bring the sheet that has the Hebrew text on it, but bring your outline back, although I will have extra copies of the mirror symmetry if you happen to forget it. Do you have any questions or comments before uh, we close in prayer? Yes, Cheryl. I'm seeing a little bit of the 23rd Psalm in here, just a little bit. Okay, what verse are you referring to? Or what expression are you referring to? In the dark, in dark places, he's made me dwell. Okay. okay. All right. That's fine. There's an illusion there. Any other comment or question? Yes, Scott. What do Jewish commentators do with this? Do you know? Um, Those who believe it's Jeremiah and the older Talmudic and Midrashic uh, rabbis uh, look for a reference to Jeremiah himself and to his embodying the agony of the city of Jerusalem then. But no future vector, no prophetic significance. It is the tendency of all Judaism to interiorize suffering to the self-centeredness of what it means to be Jewish. 
<clears throat> so that ultimately the suffering in extrapolation becomes a meritorious good work. Now, um, that's based on uh, on the comments from the rabbinical commentaries that are in the critical modern commentators. I haven't read the Talmud or the Midrash. I don't have access to it anymore. I used to have access to it, but it's... Uh, it, <clears throat> It's far too expensive to be part of a personal library and far, far too extensive. I mean, it's a huge uh, series of, of uh, hundreds of volumes. And the other thing about it is that it's not uniform or consistent because it's quoting the rabbis from many different traditions who have different ideas. But there is different, different ideas. But there, there is one common idea. It doesn't refer to the, to the Christian Jesus. That is clear. Even though they come perilously close to it sometimes, with that this, this figure has a kind of vicarious character to it. They come close, but they won't they won't they won't go over the line. It's Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo in the second century. <clears throat> you know, it's a very famous exchange between the Christian Justin Martyr and the Jewish Trifo. And <clears throat> they're arguing not about this, but about Isaiah fifty three in detail there. And the Jew is always looking to the, to the nation of Israel or to the people of the Judaism. Pete? Not referring to a coming Messiah at any time? Not here, no. Uh, in Isaiah 53, yes. But a, a Messiah who is not an individual as much as he's an embodiment of the nation or a Davidic figure, <clears throat> not, not, uh, not a godlike figure, Yes, but not here. If they come, as I said, if they come close to it, it's in perceiving the vicarious nature of the suffering man here. They, they might get up to the edge of it. Now, there may be some that do say this that I'm not aware of, but I'm, I'm basing this on what I've read from the commentators that are quoting some of the Talmudic and Midrashic material in their own exegesis of these verses. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we give you thanks for the solitary voice of the suffering man because that one prefigured here has come. In history, he has suffered. Suffered in his own person, but suffered in his own person on our behalf. He has taken the agony and the pathos, the plangency and the threnody of this book, and he has incarnated in himself so that he may bear it away, this man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, this one who bears our iniquities and carries our sorrows. Lord, we thank you for the eyes of faith to see and to believe and to love even more your Son, the Lord Jesus, greater than Jeremiah, but the one whom Jeremiah projected. And we bless you for that revelation. Bless our hearts then with the joy of the accomplishment of these words, 
the one who suffered to accomplish them in our place so that we might not endure an eternity of sorrow and suffering. In the name of Jesus, the eschatological suffering man, we pray. Amen.